This is the episode where Dave Henderson gives me the idiot's guide to financial technology. We discuss whether open banking has been a success, the impact of the Khalifa review on fintech, and we look at some of the businesses set to disrupt the UK financial services system. There we go. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tom. Thank you very much for making some time to talk to me today. I'm going to ask you to do a quick introduction on yourself, and then I would really like you to talk to me a bit about fintech, about financial technology, and how it's developing in the UK, and what the future of it might look like. And uh, I would just preface that by saying we are way outside my wheelhouse here. This is way beyond my comfort zone. So, you know, pensions, I can make a decent fist of pretending I might know what I'm talking about. A lot of this stuff is just fairly alien to me. So I'm really hoping that you can just kind of hold my hand and walk me through some of this stuff. But can you just start by just quick introduction? Who is David Henderson? Yeah, so um, Dave Henderson, I worked at Harkley Sandstein for about almost 20 years. I held the roles there of head of pensions and head of transformation. So busy periods there. So I saw the company through the uh, pensions freedoms back in 2015, which was a really interesting, exciting time to be part of the business. More recently, as head of transformation, I set up HL's overseas tech hub, which is HL Tech. In Poland, yeah. That's it, yeah. In Warsaw and Poland, not Warsaw in the Midlands, which sometimes people get confused with. <laughs> but yeah, so that was a really interesting part of the business to be involved in. And that's really where I started getting involved in the technology side of things. So I've always been interested in innovation, new ways of working, and had a good span across the business. So yeah, start, started working on the tech side more there. Outside of HL or running alongside my time at HL, but still doing this now, I'm a strategic advisor for FinTech West. So FinTech West is actually one of the regional bodies representing the Southwest, but it's connected with the regional FinTech network. And essentially what it's there to do is help grow, promote FinTech and encourage investment and collaboration in region, which is doing really well. So it's been going for a few years now and it's growing each year. We just had our national conference in October. I'm also a advisor for a company called Stratify. So Stratify are a robo-advisor. And basically going along the lines of helping to democratize investing and open up for the masses by creating investment strategies for them. So it's been really interesting and good fun to be part of that. And we're hoping to launch early in the new year. And I've just more recently started working with a company called Behind Login, who help businesses understand the competitors' digital experiences. So analyzing what's going on across the platforms for the use of super users and the qualitative research. So yeah, re- really interesting. And also part of the Bristol Technology Festival. So founding member of the Bristol Technology Festival. It's been running for the last two or three years. That's basically a week-long event where we encourage all the great and the good in the region and beyond to come and promote what's going on here. So yeah, really busy week again, about 5,000 people each time we've run that. So success again. So, I mean, it feels like there's no traditional career path into the kind of work you're doing here so you didn't do any specific sort of financial technology qualifications or you know learning to get you to this point this is just stuff you kind of picked up as you went along am i am i being unfair there i mean i'm just interested in how you start off doing transformation at hl and that led you into doing the hub in warsaw and it just it just feels like a step-by-step progression rather than a career path as stuff is it such is, is, that, is that fair yeah that's fair i mean I was, I was quite lucky my whole time at hl was always given lots of different opportunities to do things and hl being the way it grew you were encouraged to do that so 
yeah, when new innovations or new opportunities come along, then you get involved and you just you pick it up as you go along. That was kind of the way. And then the last few years, setting up the tech hub in Warsaw, understanding what they were trying to do, developing the back-end systems, but also microservices and third parties that they're looking to work with, you get a better understanding of that. And it is something that you just become interested in. And then you start looking wider and beyond and, and thinking, well, actually, what does that mean for the future of financial services in general? Hmm. And then that, there's that thing of reaching out, working with FinTech West, working with startups. So, yeah, it's really interesting. And it's, I'm quite lucky to be involved in that, really. So, again, it sounds like a fun journey. Talk to me a bit about the Khalifa review, because that was a big milestone kind of report. That was the British government saying, where are we at and what are we going to do next and how are we going to be a dominant force in financial technology, right? Yeah, that's right. So the Khalifa review was basically, I think it was in the budget in 2020, Rishi Sunak asked Ron Khalifa to conduct this independent review of the fintech sector in the UK. And it's basically a way of making sure that we carry on on that growth trajectory and encourage things like um, it's focusing on five areas, basically. So policy, regulation, skills, attracting international talent, I guess, and national investment as well through something called CFIT. So the recommendations came out in ooh, probably about six months ago now. Yeah. And there's a few things there that have been more publicised than others. So amendments to the UK listing rules to make it more attractive, make the UK more attractive location for IPOs, improvements in things like tech visas to attract global talent to help boost the fintech workforce. Skills is a big thing going forward, and it's always going to be the case. So if you make sure that you're still attracting the right talent to the UK, not just London, but the UK, then that's a great thing. Creation of a reg fintech scale box to mm. provide additional support to growth stage fintech. So what do they need to do to grow? And then a really, a really interesting one is the Centre for Finance, Innovation and Technology, or CFIT. And that's basically to strengthen national coordination across the fintech ecosystem and boost growth. So that's the idea of making sure it, it's not just London-centric growth, but it's across the different regions as well. I think there's still talk on how that's going to be run. Is it going to be, I don't think it needs to be a physical space, but how are the different networks going to connect and how can they all get them get the most from that? So that's an interesting development to watch. And it's good that it's going out across the UK and helping grow fintech, not just in London. That's really interesting because geographical location does matter in some respects, doesn't it? You know, you talk about regional hubs and certainly here in Bristol, that connectivity of financial institutions and support services like legal businesses and academia you know the fact we've got two big universities here in Bristol and that creates you know you talked about skills and the fact that it happens in a location where people can can actually physically meet and people can migrate from a university into a job or do placements or whatever that matters doesn't it that that, that in that respect that physical location is important right yeah definitely and you, and you're right there it's not just about the financial services companies or the pure financial services company it, it's the whole network so it's it's about the established fintechs and financial services it's about scale ups it's about existing tech so associated services in, in Bristol that might be Oracle, for example, or all the likes, or existing digital hubs you've got. So places like the Engine Shed or Runway East, these are places that help startups grow and offer them services and places to you know, collaborate, meet new people and, and help grow their business. And then, like you said, advisory and supporting services. So your lawyers, your solicitors, your KPMGs, Deloitte's, Whitecap, all the supporting services that you need to grow your business and really importantly, funding. And mm-hmm. higher education is part of that. And like you say, we've got, we're quite lucky here because we've got University of Bristol, University of Bath, Bath Spa, UE. So lots going on here. 
And it's, it's good that it's all starting to join up. Just take me back for a second. Something I perhaps should have introduced earlier on, but I just want to touch on now is open banking, which just kind of created a platform for a lot of this kind of stuff. So I'm going to have a go at this. Imran, ah, no, I can't remember how to pronounce his surname. The guy that led the open banking implementation entity. I seem to remember it was him talking a while ago about... I think it was him talking about the cost of the development of open banking and the open banking implementation identity cost like tens of millions. It was subsidized by the banks. But from the bank's point of view, the actual development behind the scenes and complying with the regulatory impositions were put on them, that was like hundreds of millions of pounds they had to throw at that to make it work. So I know there was very substantial cost involved. Just from your point of view, in terms of the, the benefits it's brought, do you think open banking has been a success? Has it delivered on its promises? It's, it depends how you view it. So I think, actually, I'm sure I heard a quote this week. If I've got this one wrong, then I apologise. But I'm sure it was Anne Bowden came out with, uh, recently saying that it's not served the masses. So it's failed so far. Depending how you view it, you can agree or disagree with that. What I think it has done is open up innovation. So I don't think we're anywhere near where the dream of open banking would be, which is personalization of data and services and linking all your accounts. But we're getting there. And I think the the ultimate end goal of that will be that it's not just open banking, it's open wealth. And it's that understanding of having really rich data and offering services even before you know you need that service or even without you needing to know. So the way I always see it is that idea of having one gateway into your finances. And actually, underneath that, I don't really care to some extent who my ISA is with or who my pension is with mm-hmm. or et cetera. It all just becomes a utility. So I think we're a long way off from that. And part of it has been the regulation. And there's been, I think there's been a change in the last week about this 90-day rule about giving permission, which is a step in the right direction because there's thoughts that that was a bit of a blocker for people. Sorry, I didn't see that one. Just unpack that for me. What do you mean by the 90-day rule? So this refers to when you sign up to allow access to your accounts, you have to re-justify it or you have to acknowledge it again or give permission again after 90 days. Oh, that's really going to annoy people, isn't it? Yeah, so it's going to annoy the individual, but I don't think that's the blocker. I think the blocker at the moment is still probably that just because we were learning to be this interconnected world mm. and through APIs, different services, there's still a lot of stuff, as you know, from pensions, there's a hell of a lot of stuff that's still paper-based. There's a hell of a lot of companies that aren't at the same levels of innovation. So actually to just go out with requests and say, give me all my financial data and wealth in one place. It's a great idea at the moment, but it's probably quite tricky. So I think there's still a bit of of a stumbling block there to go. But I think it's moving in the right direction. And I think the fact that we're having conversations now, it's moved on from open banking to open wealth, open finance, whatever you want to call it. That's a step in the right direction. All of this ultimately, how I see it anyway, is that it's going to provide better, more personalized services for clients, individuals. It's better outcomes. You're saving money. And ultimately, if that means you can retire five years early, all the better. So, yeah, in answer, long-winded answer to your question, I think it's on the right path. And within all of that, there's always that problem of the legacy systems, which you kind of touched on there, that, you know, new innovative companies come along with fresh systems and fresh processes, and it was all really yeah. slick. And, you know, that's where Hargreaves Lansdowne was 20 years ago. It was just like mm-hmm. this new challenger business doing stuff much faster and better than the old incumbent businesses. But... Tens of millions of people have financial arrangements that are locked into these old systems. 
And it will take all these financial institutions, whether they're banks or insurance companies or pension companies or whoever, it's going to take them a long time to migrate all those records into a digital format that can then interconnect with new systems and APIs and new service providers and become part of this new ecosystem you're describing. I mean, there's no quick way around any of that, is there? No. I mean, it's, we're not in a country where they're just going to say overnight, this needs to be done in the next six months. I've, it's same for digital ID. We're going to do this in six months, get on board or, or you're out the picture. That's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you, you're the pensions expert here. You'll know that a lot of these pensions companies just aren't going to do it. But if you can get the majority of them, if you can get the, the main companies to do it, then that's a start and it's moving in the right direction. But I've dealt with pension companies in the past and it's, it's you, you phone up to ask for a valuation and you wait while someone walks off to get it from a filing cabinet. Now, they are a million miles away from putting to be able to connect that digitally, but that's fine. If at least the majority of the main players get on board, let's talk of the dashboard, et cetera, then, mm. then that's a start. It shows the, the direction of travel as well. And if we can stop adding to the problem, so if every new account that right. gets opened is on a new system that is connected and where... I mean, this is problem of... Auto-enrollment was a fantastic success. But we've also hardwired into it a problem that because we used inertia, there are these millions and millions of people who've signed up to pension accounts and the pension providers have no direct contact with the members. So they don't have their email address. They don't have their phone number. And then that individual leaves that job. And so their work email address is no use anymore. And they've become a dormant account and the pension provider's got no way of contacting them other than sending them a letter. And you know, went back to square one again. I think with forced enrollment, the right intention was there. So the oh, yeah. fact that you then end up with these dormant pots, that's a problem that can be solved. But at least the direction of travel and the right intention is there. For sure, you know, so it's not to diminish the beneficial impact of auto-enrollment. And it was a definitely a good thing. And, you know, Turner's insight yeah. of using inertia to get people into the system was just genius. Unfortunately, it's now created a new problem for us, which is we still need to talk to all these people and we need to engage them. And there is this emerging challenge, you know, this recognition that, great, we've got all these pension savers, but we kind of need to talk to them. How are we going to do that bit next? And that's, that's emerging as a, as a really interesting challenge. And, you know, yeah. fintech has a role to play in that. If you can bring the pensions to the people, so you put the pension mm-hmm. information in a place where it is just kind of relevant and accessible for them, people will engage with it. But that also then requires permissions and data and connectivity and APIs and the rest of it, yeah. But you've you've got to make it as simple as possible. I mean, most people aren't going to, and this is why people lose pensions, because they don't really understand them. They don't know where they're invested. I think a report came out from our old employers and our our old colleague Nathan Long today (laughs) about, is it 32% of people invest in a pension don't even know it's invested or don't understand where it's invested, which... That's not nothing that they've done wrong. It's just it's they're not told that and they're not given the information when they sign up. So different way of engaging with your pension, making it as simple as possible for you to track it, not having to go into multiple logins or multiple websites or phone around to find out where it is. Those are the kind of solutions. I've heard you talk in the past about this idea about pot follows member, which mm. I think is a good concept as well, because it needs to be simple. It needs it needs to be easy for the individuals. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, policymaking tends to move pretty slowly. And sometimes that's not a bad thing. <laughs> like, you know, cause, yeah. Because let's just slow the politicians down and they'll do less harm. 
but politicians move slowly, financial institutions tend to move slowly. And then you get new startups come along and because they've got no baggage train behind them of legacy systems and customers and so on, they can yeah. move really fast, but they can't fix yeah. the problem because they don't have any customers. So, <laughs> so, you know, ultimately you've still got to go back to those big financial institutions that do have all the customers and that's where the money is and that's where the customers are. And so you've still got to find ways to connect with all of them. That's true. But what these startups can do, they can shout about the problem. So if you look at things like gambling blocks as an easy example that Monzo and Starling do. So that was for people that know they've got a problem with gambling and I find it too easy to just tap and place a bet. Monzo and Starling brought those features in. So I think you then, once you put a block in, is it 48 hours and then you need to phone to reset it and I think you maybe have to go through some questions. What you saw is all the main, all the incumbent banks or the, the main banks come in and just copy those features. And has so that worked? Has that, that, that yeah. been effective? That's really good to Definitely, hear. It, just, yeah. it really annoys me the amount of gambling advertising we see around the place and on sponsoring yeah. the yeah. premiership so and so on. Yeah, exactly. So things like that, That's whilst they might, like you said, they might not have the customer base to start with, at least they're kind of giving the big boys a kick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I'm I'm vaguely aware there are there are some interesting fintech businesses around. I mean, you and I have talked about Tumalo, for example, which I think is a really interesting mm. business, sort of promoting better governance and better engagement with voting activity on on pension schemes. There's there's Money Hub and there's there's, you know, there's a few like that. I'd, I'd just be interested to hear from you what you think are the the really interesting fintech businesses that you think are going to disrupt stuff and 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 are pointing the way for for some really interesting developments for the future. Okay, so in terms of disrupt stuff, I think the ones you're really looking at is when you start getting into web free and decentralized finance, like fintech for you, that's out my comfort zone. So I'm going to stay away from that. I think the people that are keen and passionate about that understand that argument. So, so before you move on, I'm just going to ask yeah. you, what did you mean by decentralized finance? Can you at least talk to me a bit about that? Yeah, so it's basically reinventing the existing financial system on a blockchain. Okay, right, right. So we're talking distributed ledger technology and, right, so yeah, yeah you, you, my, my, my brain tends to explode a bit when we get into this kind of territory. Yeah, I think we've probably both gone into a cul-de-sac there. So we'll <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's back out again, move on. Yeah, reverse slides on. Um, <laughs> this is going to be quite sort of biased towards the Southwest and companies I've come across okay. or I've dealt yeah. with, but I think try Penny. So I think they're really interesting and that's going back to the pensions conversation. So similar to Pensions B in, the, in what they do, they track down your lost pensions, specifically focus on workplace pensions. But what they do have is good AI to automatically trace those providers. So having spoken to those guys in terms of the conversion rates and the success that they're having in terms of in, in sourcing people all the pensions, I think they're doing really well. Do they help people track down lost pensions? Is that, is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, because yeah, there's definitely a need for more of that. Yeah, 100%. There's a company called Finer Credit. So they are trying to fix what... Well, I'm, I'm still amazed there's not too many companies that are tackling this, the mortgage market. Most people are lucky enough to buy a house at some point and sell a house and move up the ladder or, or whatever. But the whole market seems to be broken. I think what Finer Credit are doing, they're trying to simplify that traditional process and get you the best deal quicker and move the process along a lot quicker as well. Oh. Buying and selling a house at the moment, it can take three, six months, depending. Well, buying and selling a house is just a horrible experience, full stop, in, in my experience. I mean, even when it's been good, it's been pretty unpleasant. But alongside that, the mortgage process just feels like it's still stuck in the 1990s. It's just like yeah. the whole chain that you have to go through is just so laborious and slow. 
And then you compare that with things like open banking, where you know once you've registered, you can move money around, you can pay stuff, you can, you can, you can set up new payment systems. You know, you can you can connect it into your different apps, and and that works. Whereas the mortgage industry, particularly, just still seems to be stuck in the 1990s and quite happy there. Yeah, and the whole process. I mean, really, not having a go at estate agents here, but do you really need one? You can do an online viewing. You can get an idea of where it is. You can do the map for you. You can understand where the schools are. You can pretty much get all of it apart from get access to the building, which that could just be done for a lockbox. So, yeah, I think there's there's definitely room for disruption there. So um, it'd be um, interesting um, to see those guys. Um, what exactly are FINA Credit doing? Are they, are they facilitating access to the lending? Is that the bit they do? Yeah, so trying to simplify that process of getting access to the, the best mortgage deals faster and cheaper. So right. getting a better understanding of what your needs are, going through that fact-finding process, or automating it and trying to speed the whole thing up. So, yeah, better outcomes quicker. Right, and and presumably, are they delivering regulated advice in that respect? Do you know? Because, I mean, yeah, the mortgage, the regulated advice, mortgage yeah, broking so is regulated. Process, um, I think. Once you get into the territory of regulated advice firm's capacity to deliver solutions using technology, streamlining and making the system more efficient and delivering better access to advisory solutions for the masses, I think is a really interesting area of development and so, so hard because the risks involved are really high. And as soon as you start advising people, the regulatory responsibilities you take on are just huge. And if you get one thing wrong and then multiply it out across multiple transactions, you can get into trouble quite quickly. Yeah, that's right. If you are automating the advice process or automating anything, it's that thing about put something bad in, something bad comes out. But yeah. like you say, it's multiplied by 100. I've toned down that phrase, actually. It's a different way of saying it for, the, <laughs> for this part of toned it down. But you, you get what I mean. I think we both agree on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So any others you think worth highlighting that are just pointing the way to how fintech is going to evolve and disrupt? Well, I think in terms of theme I've seen recently, and it's slightly biased again, but Stratify is the company I've been working with. But I've seen a few other companies going down a similar approach. And this idea about the robo-advice process and using quantitative analysis or strategies to build your own profile, to build your own strategies, and also create some for you. So to bring investing to the masses, basically, but do it cheaper and access it on your phone as well. We've seen that already, and there's, there's lots of apps coming out at the moment in terms of low-cost, free trading, etc. We all know who those are, but I think it's then creating USP about, okay, so I've invested. What additional services are you offering me? And it might be that they're doing things to support the climate each time you trade by planting a tree, or it might be by creating more personalized strategies for you so you can make sure that actually you don't have to take all the responsibility here. So, yeah, lots of companies coming out looking at different USPs around that sort of free trading plus scenario. Interesting. And do you feel like the environment for development and growth, access to finance, access to skills, you know, coming back to some of the stuff Khalifa, Ron Khalifa talked about. Do you think the UK is well placed to capitalize on this? I mean, we're, we're a global financial center and we've, you know, it's a big part of our economy. Do you see this as being set to continue? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the fintech sector in the UK generates what, almost 7 billion per year and I think it employs about 80,000 and that's just going to grow. I think there's a thing where still about 94% of funding in UK fintech is still in London. So that's that's a problem. But I think that is changing. I think there is, I think the Khalifa review will help with that, has helped with that. And if you look at Stratify, they went through the Set Squared Accelerator program in Bristol, and they recently went through crowdfunding and had a target of 200,000 and actually raised in excess of 450,000 
So I think there is the right funding out there. And I think these platforms that help you raise the money as well are doing a good job of that and making it more accessible to individuals to get involved in that as well. So I do think skills is going to be something that is going to be a problem in the future. You can already see the costs for certain rules just increasing. But I mean, in a way, COVID's helped that in the sense that people are realizing you don't need to all be in the same room. So Mm. you have companies that have developers based in, you might have one in Portugal, one in China. And actually, as long as you come together once a week and there's all the different ways of working and sharing tools these days, it's it's actually a lot easier. Whether that will affect your culture of the company going forward is probably depends on each company. But I think there needs to be a good balance there in terms of skills and making sure that we don't neglect the growth of skills in the UK. Interesting. It feels like the university sector, to some degree, is stepping up to this challenge and you know, is, is creating the academic environment to promote that skills growth. Yeah, I 100% agree. And only talking on my experience in the Bristol and surrounding area here, but we've, we've got the two main universities here, University West of England and University of Bristol, are doing a lot on that. And gradually, we're getting more and more of the corporates getting involved with that and realizing, actually, there's a lot going on on, on their doorstep. Bristol University, for example, already have or are launching MSCs in technology, innovation and enterprise. There's already programs going on at University of West of England. So you've got FinTech MSC, which I think is now in its second year. So these are great, great programs and employers are now starting to connect with them more. So we're doing a lot with the FinTech MSC up here at UE. And for the last few months, we've been having guest lectures come in and just speak to the students. And that's anything from open banking to legal, to GDPR. We had someone talking about AI and ethics today. We've got someone talking about compliance next week. We've got startups coming in. It's helping the students get a better understanding of the skills that are needed and also the opportunities as well. You don't just need to be a developer to get a role in FinTech. There's all the supporting services as well. But it's also making sure that when they do create a business and create a new, a new company, they understand how to weave in things like your compliance, your legal, yeah. uh, your procurement, from day one, rather than having to sort of go back and unravel all that. And there's a good symbiotic relationship there because you can also get into realms of placements and so these students get sort of real-time experience at the coalface, the businesses get cheap labour and young and enthusiastic, bright people who are coming in and doing bits of work and then going back into into academia again and then things loop round in the long term, don't they? Exactly. I mean, if you're smart about this, you engage with these students on day one and you can you can just make sure that you're spotting the best ones coming through yeah. and build a relationship with them. And whether that's them then coming in in their holidays to work for you or you just keep an eye on them until they finish, it's a great way to just have a good talent pipeline coming through. Dave, that sounds like a good positive note on which to draw this to a conclusion. So I'm going to say thank you very much for walking through some of that stuff. I understand fintech a bit better than I did half an hour ago, and I'm really grateful to you for that. <laughs> okay, thanks. Nice just to speak to you, Tom. To you. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, then please do give it a positive rating as this seems to assuage the keepers of the algorithms in some way. Thanks very much.